excited about studying this chapter with you, Revelation 20. If you need Bibles, I should come forward with Bibles. And if you need a Bible with this translation, you just keep it. It's on the church. And I want to reemphasize what Mike was saying uh, this morning, too, is if you're new to Calvary Chapel and you want to learn more about what we're all about and have a Q&A time with Pastor Mike and I, we'll be behind this curtain right here in the hospitality room just for maybe 15, probably about a 20-minute time of just talking about the church. So love to have you. It's uh, just a short meeting we'll have to answer any questions you have about the church uh, called the Newcomers Meeting. Okay, so we're in Revelation 20. And we're in a great chapter. It's called the Millennial Rule of Christ. Now, what is that all about? Now, remember where we're coming from. We're, we're in this book of Revelation that's a, a futuristic book. We saw that the, the beginning of the book was, was the church age, chapters 2 and 3. The seven messages to the seven churches, seven number of completion, which means it's the complete message to churches throughout the church age. There's messages we saw in chapters 2 and 3 that relate to all churches, but specifically Jesus is speaking to seven churches in Asia Minor. And then after these things, chapter 4, we saw that there was going to be a rapture. After the church age, rapture. Beam me up, Jesus. We're out of here, Right? And then there's seven years of great tribulation where there's three series of seven judgments that come. The seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls of God's wrath. And this Antichrist takes over as the church is out of here. Antichrist takes over. He's the world leader politically, governmentally. He gets governmental control through this mark of the beast. You can't buy and sell anything. Now praise God if you're a Christian right now, you'll be beamed out of here, raptured before this Antichrist takes over, but he's going to take over. God's going to allow him to. And then the seven years of great tribulation will be ended what we saw last week, Revelation 19, which is what? The second coming of Christ to this earth. And he, he pierces the sky with that white horse, with the armies of heaven on white horses. And we're coming back. And we're coming back for the marriage supper of the Lamb we saw last week, where the church is going to be official ceremony church of the church, being the bride of Christ, being, being brought back. And we're going to have this start the thousand-year reign of Christ with the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he's going to wipe out the Antichrist and the 200 million troops. The blood's going to flow as high as bridles of horses for 200 square miles in the valley of Megiddo. And then we get to our chapter, chapter 20. He's going to set up his kingdom here on earth. When I was a kid, we'd have family gatherings. And the family gatherings for Christmas or the family gatherings for Thanksgiving. And we'd always start that Thanksgiving dinner or we'd always start the Christmas dinner with my dad or grandpa or whoever else leading us in our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed, what? Be thy name. And then what's the next, next part of that prayer? Thy kingdom come. What? Thy will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. This is the answer to that prayer, this chapter, Revelation 20. As Christ comes back on the white horse, demolishes the Antichrist and the forces of hell on earth, he sets up his kingdom here on earth for a thousand years. And we're going to see six times in these first seven verses that it's a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years. Now, why is it called the millennial rule of Christ? Because there's two Latin words, milli and annum. Milli in the Latin is a thousand, and annum is years, thousand years. And he sets up literally his kingdom on earth for a thousand years. Now, interesting, this is an answer to promises all throughout the Old Testament. 
All throughout the Old Testament, there's the prophetic scripture that points to the kingdom coming to this earth. And Jesus talked about it, and the prophets talked about it. Let me give you a couple of verses. Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. It should be up on the screen. It says, and to him was given, this is talking about Christ, to him Christ was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him, Jesus. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And then Zechariah, the prophet, in chapter 14, verse 9, said, and the Lord, talking about Jesus, the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one in his name will be the only one. We're going to move from a democracy to a theocracy. And the king of kings and the lord of lords will be our king. And when I think about that, I say, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. Please, come quickly. And he will. After the second coming, he's going to set up his millennial rule for a thousand years. Now question, what's going to characterize? What's what's going to be some of the things that are going to be happening during this millennial rule of Christ? I'll give you uh, at least three or four things, three or four things we know from Scripture. This is the first one. uh, Amazing to me. According to Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3, one of the things that's going to characterize the millennial world of Christ is the teaching of Christ. He's going to set up his headquarters in Jerusalem, and as he sets up his headquarters in Jerusalem, he's going to teach the world the word of God. It says in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3, and many peoples will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways. Notice the word his is capitalized because it's talking about Jesus. His ways, and that we might walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord will come from Jerusalem. That's awesome. You know, sometimes I read the Gospels, I'm jealous. I'm jealous of those first century disciples. Because they got to hang out with Jesus for three years. Can you imagine? Not only just seeing his miracles would be cool. I mean, walking on water, raising dead Lazarus, uh, setting people that are filled with demons free, uh, putting clay in a guy's eye and he sees again. That'd be pretty cool. But even more cool would be to sit under his teaching for three years. The Sermon on the Mount. His teaching of the parables. And to be taught by Jesus. I'm jealous of those guys. But I was reminded this week I shouldn't be jealous. Because I don't get it for three years. I'm going to get it for a thousand years in the millennial kingdom of God. We're going to get to go to Jerusalem. And I think we'll have uh, resurrected, immortal, imperishable bodies where we could just transport ourselves. No 14-hour plane flights. It's like, come, transport. Go to Jerusalem. And we'll go. Resurrected bodies to Jerusalem. And we'll sit with our Bibles open and Jesus will teach us, according to Isaiah 2, 3. And that's going to be awesome. Talk about anointed teaching. Wow. Looking forward to that. And then another thing that will characterize the millennial kingdom of, of Christ is, check this out, peace. Peace. Isaiah uh, uh, prophetically speaks of this peace. Isaiah 2, 4. It says, and he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples and they'll hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not rise or lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Now that's really cool because what it's saying is even the weapons will be turned into gardening tools because there'll be no need for a tool or weapons because all 
world will be reunited in peace. What's Jesus' name? Prince of Peace. And he's going to be a prince of peace during this thousand-year reign. No more war. No more hatred. No more murdering people. No more killing people because political issues going on. Jesus will be king over the whole world, and there will be peace. And let, listen to this. Not only will there be peace among people, there will be peace among animals. All creation will be restored to peace. I know that from Isaiah 11, verse 6, it says, And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goats, and the calf and the young lion. Imagine that calves and young lions and fatlings together, and a little boy will lead them. Also, the cow and the bear will graze. Cows are going to be hanging out and grazing with bears. That's amazing. Their young, young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of cobras. Think of that, moms. Your kids will be playing with cobras because there'll be peace even with the poisonous snakes during the thousand-year reign of Christ. The nursing child will play by the hole of cobra and the weaned child will put the hand on the viper's den and there'll be peace. All of, all of creation will be restored to peace and I'm looking forward to that because there's a lot of lack of peace in our world today. Have you noticed that? Hello, last year of politics, lack of peace. That'll be all straightened out during the millennial rule of Christ. And then also fruit. Another thing that will characterize the reign of Christ will be fruit and prosperity. I was, I'm reading from Isaiah chapter 35, 1 through 2. It says, And the wilderness and the desert will be glad, and the Araba will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. I don't know what a crocus is, but it's going to be blossoming. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Talk about harvests and prosperity and blessing will be upon the world. Because we're going to see in this chapter, Satan will be bound for that thousand year period. His tempting us and oppressing us and causing darkness and all kinds of problems in our marriages, in our kids, in this world, in the anger, in the conflict, Satan will be bound for a thousand years. And there'll be peace, but there'll also be prosperity and great fruitfulness. The last thing that I know will be happening during the thousand-year reign of Christ is truth and righteousness. We know from Isaiah also it says, the knowledge of the Lord is going to cover the world as the waters cover the seas. The, the majority of people, the vast majority of people during this thousand year reign, except for a, one more rebellion at the end of the thousand years by kids that will be born during that thousand years, besides that, everybody's gonna be Christians. And the effect of everybody being Christ followers is gonna impact the whole world. It's gonna be amazing. Kind of reminds me to just a small degree of what I experienced when I went to Heidi's hometown for the first time. Uh, first summer that, I, that after we were married, and, and actually I think it might have been pre-marriage, well, the first summer after Heidi and I were, were dating and everything else, I went to Orange City, Iowa. Now you need to understand Orange City, Iowa. It's, it's 90% plus Dutch people. And I love that because I'm 100% Dutch, and if you're, if you're not Dutch, you're not much. No, just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. But it's, it's all these Dutch people and 90% plus of the people that live there, they're, they're, they go to church. And most of them are Bible-believing go-to-church people. 
And I remember going there. I'm from Chicago, where it's just the opposite. But I remember going there the first summer Sunday we were there. We're driving to church in Orange City, Iowa, because Heidi's parents live a little bit out of town. We're driving to church. We get into town, and it's early Sunday morning, and there's all these, there's hundreds of people walking on the sidewalks. I go, Heidi, is there some big sale going on? What are all these people walking for? They're all walking to church. And I couldn't believe it. I mean, and the churches were packed on a summer Sunday. They were packed. And then the next day we go shopping downtown Orange City, Iowa, and, and we take her mom's car, which was a really nice kind of sedan car. She, her mom let us use her car. And we're driving to downtown Orange City, Iowa, to downtown area. And we get to the downtown area. I'm driving. And so I start taking the keys out of the car. And she goes, no, don't do that. What do you, I'm from Chicago. What do you mean don't take the keys out of the car? So you don't need to. I said, we're downtown here. I was, no, leave the keys in the car. And then I start closing the windows. She goes, don't, don't, just leave the windows open. So just leave it open. Are you serious? I'm from Chicago. Wherever you go in Chicago, you park your car, you close your windows, you lock the door. And some parts in Chicago, when you drive and you're at a stoplight, you close your windows and lock the door. Or you're going to get carjacked. And I, I couldn't believe it. We left the keys in the car and the windows open, and we went shopping. But we could do that because of the Christian influence in that city. Now, multiply that times a million with Christ reigning for a thousand years. You get the picture of what this millennial rule of Christ, what the earth is going to be like when Christ reigns and people are all following Jesus Christ? That's the way to go, amen? That's what we have to look forward to. Okay, so that background mind, let's get in our chapter. Chapter 20, Revelation 20, verse 1, if you're there, say amen. Here we go. And it says, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key of the abyss, and a great chain in his hand. The one angel, chain in his hand, and he took hold of the dragon. Who's the dragon? That's Satan. The serpent of old, who's the devil, and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. And he threw Satan into the abyss. The abyss is the bottomless pit. And he shut it, and he sealed it, over, over Satan, so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, Satan must be released for a short time. We'll see that in the, towards the end of the chapter. Now, this is very interesting because it's interesting to me because, first of all, it gives some names for Satan. He's the serpent of old, right? Where does that go back to? Book of Genesis, the very beginning of man. And he tempted man by lying to man. And, and not only lying to him, but deceiving him to be disobedient to God. And because of the serpent of old's temptation, sin came cascading into the human race and brought curse to this world, the serpent of old. But he's also called, interesting, the devil there. The word devil means a slanderer. It means an accuser. And isn't that what the devil does? He stands before God day and night, Revelation twelve ten, and he accuses us before our God, Day and night, but we overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony and not loving our life even unto death. But he's an accuser. He's always accusing us. He's always trying to make us feel worthless. He's always trying to heap condemnation upon us. But I love Romans 8.1 that says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Amen? And one of the ways we overcome the evil one is by going back to the blood of the Lamb, which is the cross, and what Jesus did on the cross for us. And we remember the word of our testimony that Jesus has set us free from our sin, and he's forgiven us, and he's died for our sin, and we overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony that he's saved us. 
But there's another word that's used there for, for Satan. He's the accuser. He's the, he's, he's the um, serpent of old. But he's also Satan, which means he is the adversary. That's what Satan means, adversary. It could also be translated enemy. And that's exactly who he is. Ever since his fall from heaven, he wants to oppose everything that God's doing. He wants to oppose the work of the Spirit in your life. He wants to oppose anybody getting saved. He wants to oppose truth. He wants to oppose truth with deception. He wants to oppose the way that God's setting us free from our sin, and he wants to get us back into chains and bondage. He is the adversary. He is the one that's opposing anything that God is doing. And one of the ways it says here he opposes is through deception, because the Bible says he is the father of lies. Lies started with him. Lies are still happening with him. And his goal is to deceive us away from God and opposing God. Now, what's interesting to me in this section of Scripture, though, too, is this. It only takes one angel, one angel, to get a chain and throw him, throw him in prison for a thousand years. That's awesome. And that needs, that we need to be reminded that Satan is not the creator, he's the creation. We need to be reminded that God is the creator and he's far greater than Satan. You know why we need to be reminded of that? Because there's this Star Wars concept that even some Christians buy into. Well, you know, Star Wars, right? It's, there's the good force, and there's the evil force. And we don't know who's going to win. Is that what the Bible says? No, the, and it's dualism is what it is. That, that the good force is equally opposing the bad force. And they're, they're both equal, equal equality. That's so unbiblical. Because what the Bible says is there's a creator and there's a creation. And that God is the creator and Jesus is the creator. And greater is he that is in us, what? Than he that's in the world, Right? And we we got to be careful in this area of not giving Satan too much credit. He doesn't deserve the place of the power of our God. And we need to remember that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And if God be for us, hey, church, if God be for us, who could be against us, right? And don't give him too much credit. He's just a created angel that fell. But at the same time, don't go the other way either. Keep the balance, Don't neglect the fact that he's opposing you, he's lying to you, he's deceiving you, and he wants to have you for lunch. Don't give him too little credit either. He has been around for thousands of years, and he's pretty darn good at figuring out human beings and knowing our weaknesses and going after us. That's why the Bible says, be sober, 1 Peter chapter 5, be sober, be on the alert. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion, what? seeking to devour. He wants to have you for lunch. And he's got a mission statement, John 10.10. He wants to kill, steal, and destroy you spiritually. He wants to kill you spiritually. He wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your marriages. He wants to destroy your kids. He wants to destroy your witness. He wants to destroy your walk with God. He wants to destroy you and kill you spiritually. So don't give him too much credit, but also be aware that there's a real enemy. There's an opposer of God, and he is against us. And he's got millions of demons that are in his army that are trying to oppress us and lie to us and deceive us. But greater is he that is in us than he that's in the world, right? But at the same time, be aware. When you're at war, what's an important part of war? Intelligence. You need to know your enemy. And that's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2.11, great verse on this. He said, 
so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, we are not ignorant of his schemes. Another, another version says we are not unaware of his schemes against us, right? So be smart. Jesus said, be wise as a serpent, but innocent as a dove. And one of the greatest tools that we have to have wisdom against the enemy and the deceiver and the one that's, that's opposing us all, one of the greatest tools is what we're doing right now. It's being in the Word. John 8, 32 says, you shall know the truth. Truth will set you free. And if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. And so that's why we're in the Word all the time here at Calvary Chapel is because we want you to have all the intelligence, all the wisdom that comes from being students of God's Word so you can overcome the enemy that's against you. You know, our staff, just the last six weeks or so, we read a, read a new book every six to eight weeks, and when we discuss it on Wednesday morning at staff meeting, and the last book we just finished was Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. And it's an interesting book. It's, 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 it's really interesting because C.S. Lewis is a genius. He was a professor of Renaissance literature at Oxford you know, and, and Cambridge over in England, and you could tell by his writing. You've got to read it sometimes two or three times and say, what in the world? What, word, what does that word mean? I mean, he's got those... He's got those million-dollar words that you don't even know. But anyways, he's brilliant. But what is a senior devil, it's a fictional book, on a senior devil writing about strategies to a junior devil. And we're reading this, and I'm, I'm reading this, and I'm realizing that is so true. That's exactly how Satan works against us in a lot of the chapters. Now, why as a church do we read a book about a senior devil writing letters to a junior devil? Because we don't want to be unaware of Satan's schemes. We want to know his strategies. We want to learn so we won't be deceived and decepted and, and have, allow Satan to have us for lunch. Amen? Be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. And so Satan now is bound for a thousand years, thrown in the bottomless pit. Let's, let's pick it up now. Uh, chapter uh, 20, verse 4. And I saw thrones and them who sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded, This is the martyrs of the tribulation period because of the testimony of Jesus, because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand, and they came to life. And what were they doing? They were reigning with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, and they'll be priests of God and of Christ, and they'll reign with him for what? There it is again. How long? A thousand years. Okay, so now we see what happens during the thousand years. Christ not only sets up his kingdom here on earth, he reigns, but he reigns with us. And it's interesting. It says that uh, part of his reigning is establishing leadership. There's going to be thrones set up for leadership within the kingdom. Now, question, who is going to be in part of that leadership team? I know 12 of them. 12 of the leaders will be the New Testament apostles. We know that from Jesus' promise to them in Matthew 19, verse 27, when he said, uh, it says, Then Peter said to him, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. What then will be there for us? Talking about the apostles. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon the 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So some of the main leaders we know for sure that will be on thrones with Christ leading during this thousand-year reign will be Peter, James, John, and all the rest of the 12 apostles. Awesome. 
Well, who else is going to be reigning with Christ? Well, we'll all be reigning with Christ because what's going to happen is there's going to be a whole setup of interesting. There's going to be human beings that were resurrected at the rapture, but then there'll also be another kind of human being, and that's human beings that made it through the great tribulation. Tribulation saints, I call them. People that weren't martyred during that seven years and stayed and made it through the seven years, and they're going to have normal human bodies where those of us that are, that are resurrected at the rapture are going to be given immortal, imperishable bodies that are resurrected. And so we're going to be resurrected bodies, because if you're Christians already, and we're going to have the resurrected body of not having the sinful flesh anymore, but then there's going to be tribulation saints that have the normal human bodies that will still make wrong decisions. We'll see that later in this chapter. They'll make wrong decisions, and they need leadership. And so the leadership will be, I think, people that need to lead over the tribulation saints and govern them and help them go the right way, and that's Jesus' way. Interesting. Two different kind of subsets of of, of human beings during this time. And the wonderful thing is God's going to set up his kingdom here on earth and leadership will be established in every country, every continent, every place will have his leadership reigning in those areas. It's going to be wonderful. It's interesting here too, as we see this chapter unfold, we see that a part of leadership, I believe, is faithfulness. The apostles were faithful men. If you look at the history of all the apostles, the apostle John who wrote this book of Revelation was the only one who wasn't martyred for the kingdom of God. All the other apostles, except for Judas who betrayed him, all the other apostles faithfully preached the word and the resurrection to the ends of the earth to the point that they were martyred for their faithfulness in preaching the gospel. They were faithful, and so they're set up as leaders. What did Jesus say about leadership? He said, uh, those who have been faithful in little will be entrusted with much, Right? And what, what, what I believe is going to be the leadership structure of Jesus during his, faith, his thousand-year reign is he's going to raise up those that were faithful in this life. He's going to raise up to be leaders in the next life in the thousand-year reign of Christ. I think guys like Billy Graham will be one of the main leaders during the thousand-year reign of Christ. Why? Because Billy Graham spent 67 years of his life serving Jesus to the ends of the earth with the gospel and leading millions of people to Christ. And he was faithful during those 67 years. Very faithful man. God will raise him up to probably be a leader. I think uh, my pastor, the founder of Calvary Chapel, Chuck Smith, you know, he for 80-some years served the Lord faithfully, started Calvary Chapels all over the world. There's 1,200 Calvary Chapels now across the country, and there's probably 1,000 overseas, and there's Bible colleges all over the world that he helped start. He is faithful, and God's going to raise up men like that to be his leaders in the future, in the kingdom age also. Faithfulness. God's not so concerned, by the way, of success. He's concerned with faithfulness, and he wants us to be faithful. He says in his word, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, my life verse, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, be always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil in the Lord is not wasted, is is, is, is important. Faithfulness is important. It's important that we live in such a way that when we get to the other side, we hear from those words from God, well done, good and what? Faithful servants, enter now in the joy of your master. Now, does that save us? We'll see it in the chapter. No, our works don't save us. We're saved by grace through faith. But we're called to be faithful. Why? Because of what Jesus has done in faithfully serving us. We want to be people 
that will faithfully serve him. People that are steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our toil in the Lord is not in vain. That's my verse right there, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. So let's be faithful, amen? And I tell you what, here's the cool thing. As you are faithful, what's going to happen then is we're going to be rewarded in the next life with more opportunities to serve Jesus. And I'm excited about that. It's not, we're not going to be just sitting on clouds for the rest of eternity playing harps. We're going to be faithfully serving Jesus and leading for him in the thousand-year reign and for the rest of eternity as we faithfully serve him here. Now let's go on. Verse 7. If you're there, say amen. Here we go. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them together for the war. And the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth, and they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, that's Jerusalem. And fire came down from heaven, and what? took them out, devoured them, and the devil who deceived them, this is the serpent of old, this is Satan who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast, that's the Antichrist, and the false prophet, that's the religious leader during the uh, tribulation, are also, and they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. And I say to that, and the church says to that, amen. I'm going to be on the sidelines when Satan is thrown in that lake of fire, and I'm going to be one of the biggest cheerleaders. I'm going to be, I'm going to be oh, man, I'm, I'm going to be going, oh, yeah, yay! You know, I cheer at Clemson games because all four of my kids went to Clemson. I, I don't cheer nothing like I'm going to be cheering on the sidelines when Satan's thrown in the lake of fire. I'm going to be cheering. I'm going to go, yeah! You know, yeah! The one that, the one that had my dad in alcoholism for 35 years, he's history. He's in the lake of fire. Praise God. The one that tried to destroy, you know, so many people in our U-Turn for Christ program that tried to kill them all. Praise God. He's in the lake of fire. The one that's trying to destroy every Christian marriage in the world. The one that's trying to destroy our testimony and our witness and our lives for Jesus Christ. The one that's, that's prowling around through my whole life trying to oppress and destroy and spiritual warfare. He's in the lake of fire. Burn well, Satan. And I'm going to be cheering. Amen? How about you? How about you? How about you? I think we're all going to be saying, let's do it right now. Ready? Yeah! That's your future. And listen, listen. When the devil condemns you with your past and tries to lay all this guilt and unworthiness on you as a Christian because of your past, remind him of his future. Amen? That's his future right there. He is going to be thrown in the lake of fire. He's going to face torment and punishment for the rest of eternity because of the junk he kept trying to come against us with. He's coming to kill, steal, and destroy. He's still doing that, but we know his future. We know who wins. Amen? Awesome. I look forward to that. Oh, man, I can't wait. But an interesting thing here, too. Listen, listen. Interesting. There's going to be a whole other coup on earth. Now, how does that play out? How does it play out that these people that for a thousand years have been under the leadership of Christ, they've seen the peace, 
They've seen the prosperity. They've seen the fruitfulness. They've seen the truth. The knowledge of the Lord's cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. They see all the blessing. And now a whole new generation rebels against Christ and goes Satan's way? Here's the other question with that. Why? Why does God allow that? You know, if I were God in, those, in, that, in that position, I would take Satan not at the end of the thousand years. I'd throw him in the lake of fire right then. Why does God allow Satan to have the chains and the imprisonment gone and then brought back for a whole other deception of a whole generation? Well, first of all, here's what's going on. It's not Christians who he's deceiving. It's people that were born during the thousand year uh, reign of Christ by tribulation saints that still had procreating human bodies and they're born and they haven't made a decision to follow Christ. They're still in that point of not in a decision of to, to trust Christ and to follow him and to fully come under his leadership. Now, question again. Why does God allow this? Answer. Because he doesn't want us to be robots. He doesn't want us to be a program computer that's going to say, I love you, God. I love you, God. I love you. No, he doesn't want that. He wants us to be free will agents that make our own decisions. And we choose God. We choose his way, not the world's way. We choose to, I'm not going to be in control of myself. I'm going to let Jesus be the Lord of my life. We choose, as Deuteronomy chapter 30 says, we choose life, not death. We choose blessing, not cursing. And we choose. And that's what's going to happen. At the end of the thousand years, there's going to be a whole new generation of kids that were born. And they've got to make a choice. And unfortunately, the devil's such a deceiver. He's going to, some of those that haven't made a choice yet, he's going to deceive to go his way. And they're going to go and rebel against Jesus Christ. And the, the outcome of that will be their destruction. And listen, whenever you choose to go the world's way, and you go Satan's way, you're going to choose destruction. You know why? Because our human nature is self-destructive. In our flesh, every time, if we go the way of the flesh, we will destroy ourselves. But Jesus, he binds up the brokenhearted. He sets the captive free. He, He brings us life, and life abundantly. And so I say along with Moses, People, you got a choice. Blessing or cursing, life or death. I say with Moses, let's choose life. Let's choose Jesus. Let's choose his way instead of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And then we can live a life of blessing rather than cursing. Amen? And that's why, that's why God allows this. That's why he takes the chain off of Satan at the very end of the thousand years, because there's a whole new generation of young people that need to make a choice. They need to choose Jesus' way instead of the world's way. Now, it goes on in verse 11. And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small. Who are the dead? Those that are spiritually dead. Those that have rejected Christ, those that never gave into the knocking on their hearts for Jesus to come into their, their lives, the spiritually dead are brought before this throne. And notice what happens. 
books, plural, books were opened, and another book was opened, which is, singular, the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. They're judged according to their deeds. Interesting. And then it goes on, and the sea gave up the dead, which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead, which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, second time I said this now, according to their deeds. And death in Hades was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. I'll explain what that is in a minute. The lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, two times in those verses, it says the dead, those that have rejected Christ, when they come before God's white throne of judgment at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ, they're going to be judged according to their Deeds. Now, there's a couple interesting things about that. First thing that's interesting is I think there's different levels of punishment in hell according to these verses. What it says is those that reject Christ, yeah, they're going to be judged. Yeah, they're going to be thrown in the lake of fire, but they're going to be judged according to their deeds. So Adolf Hitler that killed six million of God's chosen people, Jewish people, and was wicked incarnate, was evil, He's going to be judged according to his deeds at a different level than someone that's rejected Christ and still try to be a good person and a good parent and good whatever. There's going to be different levels of judgment according to your deeds in the lake of fire. Now, you're still going to be judged, though. If you reject Christ, what the Scripture says is you're going to be brought before this great white throne of judgment, and books, plural, will be opened. What are the books? It's going to be a judgment of everything you've done wrong in your whole life. And it's going to be like a video screen of of all that you've done wrong, and you're going to be judged according to those deeds. And the only way you won't be judged according to your deeds is if you're perfect. And if you think you're perfect, husband, if you think you're perfect, let me just talk to your wife. You know, there's some people that have this perfectionist theology. It's the craziest thing. They, they say that, that, that they, they could reach a level of sanctification in this life where they don't sin anymore. That ain't me. And I, and I always, whenever, whenever someone has that hypothesis, that theology of perfectionist theology and their sanctification, I'll, 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 I'll kind of give them a hard time a little bit. I'll say, if they're married, it's a guy, and they're married, I'll say, okay, you think you're perfect? Let me talk to your wife. We'll solve this theology right away. Because you're not perfect. But here's the good news. If you've received Christ, you're not going to face this great white throne of judgment. You know why? Because Jesus already faced that judgment for you. When he died on the cross and had that crown of thorns put on his head and had his back scourged by the whip and he was pierced through, it says, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And he said one word, to telestai. Literally translated, paid in full. In the moment that this sinner right here in 1978, February, John Hoppe, bent his knee, because I have finally understood the gospel, and I received my Savior, said, paid in full, John Hoppy. Even though your sin is a scarlet, you're white as snow. As far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your transgressions from you. 
<laughs> and one of the reasons why I love Jesus so much, because he has been forgiven much, loves much. I know the depth of my depravity. I know how much a knucklehead I am, and still am in a lot of ways. Just talk to my wife. But I also know my Savior. And when he said for me, paid in full, if I just confess him as my Lord and Savior, it was a done deal. And you could take that to the bank. Amen? And so we don't face the great white throne of judgment. Actually, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says we will face the judgment seat of Christ, but the word there, judgment seat, in 2 Corinthians 5.21 is the bema seat. And that was the seat of rewards in the Olympic Games. It's where the judges would, would be at to give the, uh, the, the wreaths on the heads of the winners of athletic games. So, hey, we're going to face a judgment, but it's not for our salvation. It's not to go to heaven, because how do we go to heaven? Ephesians 2.8.9, for by grace we're saved through faith, that not of yourself, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast, right? Romans 5.1 says, therefore, having been justified, declared righteous is that word justified. It's, 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 it's declared by a judge righteous. Therefore, having been justified by what? Faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God made him, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf on the cross that we might become the righteousness of, 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 of God in him. That's, what, that's our righteousness. We won't face the great white throne of judgment if we receive Christ because Jesus already faced the judgment for us on the cross. But if you haven't received Christ, you are going to be judged according to your deeds. But I thought God was a God of love and grace and mercy. He is. But he's also a God of justice and holiness and truth. And he's got to be just, and he has to judge sin. That's a part of who he is, and that's why he sent Jesus. That's why he had this plan of redemption, of sending Jesus to die on a cross for our sins, because it's the only way that we don't face the great white throne of judgment. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. The cross is the only way for us not to be facing the great white throne of judgment, and be judged according to our deeds. You get an exemption. You get an exemption from the great white throne of judgment if you bend your knee to Christ and you allow him to be your Lord and your Savior. And if you don't love Jesus, it's because you don't know Jesus. Because if you know Jesus and you're forgiven by him, all you can do is say, thank you, Jesus, that you died for me and you made a way for me to go to heaven instead of hell. And listen, church, listen. God doesn't want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. 2 Peter 3, 9. God has made a way. The way is Jesus. And he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but has eternal life. God doesn't want any to perish. God didn't create hell for human beings. Did you know that? God, according to Jesus in the Gospels, God created hell for the devil and his fallen angels. He didn't create it for us. But if we reject his plan of redemption, if we reject his son, and we don't come spiritually alive, what's going to happen is we will be judged according to our, our deeds because he is a just God that must judge sin. And if you reject Christ, you're one day going to go before a great white throne of judgment and you're going to face a second death. What's that? That's judgment and then being thrown in the lake of fire. 
Now, I, I, I've heard it said, and I agree with it. If, if, if you, it's, it's, you've probably seen it as a plaque or something like that, but basically it says if, you bo- if you're born once, you're going to die twice. What does that mean? If you're only born physically and you reject Christ and you don't get born again spiritually, you're only born once, you're going to die twice. You're going to face the second death of judgment and being thrown in the lake of fire. But listen to this. If you're born twice, you're only going to die once. What does that mean? If you're born physically and you're born again spiritually through faith in Jesus Christ, you're only going to die once, and that's a physical death. And, and the Bible says when you die as a Christian, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Christ in us, hope of glory. Today, Jesus said to even the thief on the cross, he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. If you're only born once, you're going to die twice. Great white throne of judgment and throne in the lake of fire, your second death. But if you're born twice, you're only going to die once. I praise God for that. Now, a couple observations from this chapter. We'll close with this. Four observations I got in studying this this week. Number one, first observation is this. God keeps his word. All throughout the Old Testament, God promises his kingdom to come to the earth. All throughout the Old Testament, he said his Messiah is going to come a second time, and he's going to be a conquering king, and he's going to bring God's glory, not only to Israel, to the whole world. God keeps his word. You know why that's important for us? Because we need to remember all the promises in this book are yes and amen. All the promises that God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. I'll meet all your needs. I'll be Jehovah Jireh. I'll meet all your needs according to the riches of Christ Jesus. I will forgive you if you believe in Jesus Christ. I will send you to heaven for the rest of eternity because Christ in you is the hope of glory. I will be a, a father to you. I will love you. My, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. All those promises are yes and amen. We see that in his promise of setting up his kingdom here on earth. Second observation I have, outward circumstances can't change people. You know, his people, during this thousand-year reign of Christ, were under his leadership for a thousand years, and they still had depraved hearts, and they still chose to go against Christ. Outward circumstances, this is a perfect environment, but they didn't have perfect hearts. They chose against Christ. Why do I say that? Because some people have this mentality, even some Christians, if I just had the right circumstances, if I just had the right job, if I just had the right marriage, if I just had the right church, if I just had the right pastor, if I just had this, if I just had this environment, I would do much better. No, your environment doesn't dictate your direction. Here's what dictates your direction. It's your heart. It's your heart. And if you want a different direction, you've got to have a heart that changes, not your environment, your heart. You've got to have a heart that says, I'm going to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness so he can add all things unto me. I'm going to sanctify Christ as Lord in my heart. I'm going to choose Christ. And that's what, your heart is what changes your direction, not your environment, right? Another observation here. Everybody has to make their own personal decision to follow Christ. These, these people that were born during the thousand year reign of Christ, they had to make their own personal decision at the end of the thousand years. I'm going to follow the one my parents or my grandparents are following. But they had to make their personal decision. You don't inherit your Christianity. You're born into it. 
You're born, and the Bible says clearly, John 1, 12, but as many as received him, he gives the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. You gotta have a personal reception of Christ, a personal decision yourself. You don't inherit it. These people at the end of the thousand years that chose against Christ, they didn't inherit, even in the perfect environment with Christian parents, they didn't inherit their Christianity and they made a decision to go the other way. Go the other way. Now, fourth observation, very important. Very important is this. This is the bottom line of the whole thing we're studying about judgment this morning. You gotta trust Christ for your salvation and not your deeds. Again, Isaiah says your best righteous deeds are like filthy rags before a holy God. Going to church is important. I think this is where we learn about Jesus, but going to church ain't gonna save you. That's churchianity, that's not Christianity. Uh, doing good things. We're supposed to be good. God's workmanship created for good works. It's important we do good things. But that ain't going to save you. It's by grace you're saved, through faith. That not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one could boast. Remember that we're saved from the great white throne of judgment by only one thing, and that's our faith in Jesus Christ. And remember, the only way we're not going to face this judgment and be thrown in the lake of fire because we got a Savior that did this for you and for me. But God demonstrates his own love for us that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. And when he said, it is finished, church, it was. Colossians actually says, when he died on the cross, he nailed our sins to the cross, and he disarmed the powers and principalities of hell by what he did on the cross. It is finished. And I don't know about you, but that makes me want to just bend my knee in my life to him and say, Jesus, you did that for me. How can I serve you better? How can I love you more? Jesus, you got me. I love you, Lord. And I love him because he first loved me. Amen, church?